So it's good to see all y'all here. I hope y'all have fared okay with all the storms. And I know some of y'all still don't have power, which is, uh, I'm very sorry that it's hard. <laughs> I'm sure many of you all are stressed uh, this morning. And I pray that hopefully this can be just a little bit of refuge in the midst of kind of a stressful time of dealing with lots of stuff that's going on right now. So last week, uh, we began a new series that we're focusing on during the season of Lent. And it's really focusing just on the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus lived around 33 years, uh, most scholars will say. Yet the gospel writers in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spent a disproportionate amount of time focusing on really eight days in the life of Jesus. And these eight days have been come to be known as Holy Week. And Holy Week is coming up during Fayette County spring break this year, and it's a, a, the holiest season, really, the holiest week during the Christian year. And when I say holy, I just mean it's kind of set apart, it's important, people really take it seriously. There's lots of different services throughout the week during Holy Week, and people really try to turn their attention to Jesus in, a, in an even more intense way than normal. Holy Week begins on Palm Sunday, and it ends on Easter Sunday. And since the gospel writers, as we talked about last week, they spent a lot of extra time focusing on this particular week, then we're going to take their cue and we're going to spend some extra time focusing on this week during Lent. And so all throughout the season of Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, we are going to focus on the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And so I'm going to break it down for you. And Dan, I corrected my slides, so you know... I think, you know, my mind is not the best these days, but I did get it. It says April now, but here's how we're going to break it down. Last week, we looked at Palm Sunday. We talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Today, which is the fifth, we're going to be looking at Monday of that particular week, and then you can see it'll go along with each day of the week. Um, We don't have enough Sundays in Lent to cover all the days with them getting their own day, and so Friday and Saturday are going to combine into one on April 2nd. So last week, like I said, we talked about Palm Sunday, and we looked at that story in Palm Sunday when Jesus and his disciples had finally made it to Jerusalem. So they'd been on this journey for quite some time to get to Jerusalem, and they finally were there, and things had gotten pretty bad. Um, There was a lot of people that were out to get Jesus. Uh, There were people scheming and talking and trying to find ways that they could arrest him and kind of stop this movement that Jesus had started. And so they were coming into Jerusalem, and they stopped outside the city in a suburb of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And I'll show you a photo um, that I took when I got to travel to the Holy Land. And this is a photo from the Mount of Olives looking down into kind of the majestic holy city. Now, it looked different then, but the lay of the land hasn't changed too much over that many years. Um, And so it's a similar idea that you're standing up on the Mount of Olives looking down to the holy city of Jerusalem. So before entering the city, Jesus gave very specific instructions to his disciples on how they were going to go about entering the city of Jerusalem. And he was so deliberate and he was very specific with his instructions to them. And he was very intentional about the way he went into the city. Now keep in mind that the tension in the Jesus movement had risen to an all-time high. The authorities in Jerusalem had journeyed all the way up to Galilee on multiple occasions to check Jesus out. And many of them finally decided that they needed to get rid of him because he was seen as a threat. And so going into Jerusalem, like 
where the place of power was. This is where all those authorities were based out of. Going into that city when knowing that they were out to get him and wanted to get rid of him would have been a very dangerous thing for Jesus to do. Jesus had a crowd. And he knew that everybody would be watching. And he's like, I'm going into Jerusalem. And I'm not just going to go in quietly. I'm going to go in with a bang. And I'm going to draw attention to what's happening here. Because he wanted to communicate a point. And so he orchestrated this like dramatic entry into the city. Connected to all, he used all this imagery from these prophecies about the Messiah as he entered the city. Scholar Ched Myers describes his entry into Jerusalem as what he calls street theater. And street theater is really like symbolic action meant to catch the attention of the masses of the people. And so he rode, in, rode into Jerusalem on a colt, not a war horse. He had no weapons. He only had cloaks and branches that his followers had picked up along the way. Many Jews had hoped for a Messiah that would ride into Jerusalem with strength and power. And this Messiah they were longing for, they envisioned this Messiah coming into Jerusalem, entering into the temple, and kind of getting the temple back to its holy and former glory. And so they were longing for this day. And so when they saw Jesus coming in, many of them were excited. They knew about the prophecies. They're like, this might be the one. And so they shouted, Hosanna, save us. Likely giddy, I imagine, with excitement mixed with fear and trepidation. They watched Jesus come into the city. He went to the temple of all places. The most dangerous place he could show up to probably. He went to the temple complex and they probably wondered, what is this guy about to do? They're probably nervous. They're like, this is about to get real. And Mark tells us that he went into the temple courts and he just looked around at everything and then he left. Very anticlimactic, right? (laughs) But important. It appears that Jesus entered the temple to do some research, some kind of reconnaissance work. He was scoping out the scene because the next day on Monday, he was going to come back to the temple. And when he'd come back to the temple, he was about to do something that was going to be big. I'll show you a picture. Um, This is up on the hill. You can see kind of the darker gray color buildings in the on the hill, that is the town of Bethany in modern day, kind of um, that area over there. And, and it's kind of a suburb outside of Jerusalem. And you can see there's a wall that goes along there, and that's actually separating Israel from the West Bank. So I commented, when I preached on this passage, I often like to point out the fact that Jesus, he had refuge. Bethany was a place of refuge for Jesus, actually, where he would go often um, to rest and find people. He knew people there. But now, if Jesus was in Jerusalem, it would be very hard for him to travel to Bethany, actually, because there's so much division and separation and oppression that's happening in that part of the world right now. And so that day, uh, the next day on Monday, Jesus was in Bethany, and he decided he wanted to go back into Jerusalem. He had plans of what he was going to do in the temple. Mark doesn't tell us how the disciples were feeling at this moment, but you've got to imagine the disciples were extremely nervous. I mean, they knew that things were getting tense. They knew that the authorities were after them. They were probably being pursued. There were probably informants and different folks who were trying to get close to Jesus and figure out where they're staying so that they could arrest them. Jesus was a marked man at this point. And they also knew that Jesus probably told them what was up. We're going back to the temple. And they're probably thinking, we're going back to the temple? Like, really? Like, these people want to kill us. Like, why would we go to the temple? And so... 
they were probably very nervous. I remember a few years ago, I, did a, I went to Frankfurt and participated in this direct action at the U.S. Capitol with this group called the Poor People's Campaign. And I remember being so nervous, like there was not really any fear of much kind of altercation, but I remember even just then walking up to the Capitol building, wondering how the, guard, the officers there would respond to us. I was so nervous, and like, but I was, I was grateful to be there, and, and I imagined that these folks were very nervous as they entered into Jerusalem. And so they went to the temple courts, and Jesus began to engage in some very disruptive behavior. His action that he did at the temple contained four parts, all right? So let's break this down. First, when Jesus entered into the temple, he drove out those who were buying and selling. Second, he overturned the tables of the money changers and those who were selling doves in the temple. And third, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise back and forth through the temple courts. And the fourth thing Jesus did was he taught them. Now, keep in mind that the temple is like the center of like, it's the center of power and everything in Jerusalem. At that time, it was where the Jewish Sanhedrin met. It was where the high priest would work. There would be guards and officials and powerful people there. And so Jesus entered into their territory. And for some period of time, he caused a major disruption to the economic activities that were happening in the temple every single day. And he went in and he's like, I'm causing disruption. I'm messing things up for the day. You know, for most of my life, I understood this passage kind of like this. I, 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 I thought of Jesus kind of entering the temple, and he's shocked to see people are engaging in commerce and selling stuff. And, and because, like, maybe changing money and, and selling things is not really holy and appropriate for a church setting, you know, or a worship space. And so in my mind, well, Jesus cleared it out. Because he wanted to make it sacred and holy again. And I thought, you know, and then I was like, well, those mega churches that got coffee shops and gift stores and stuff, Jesus would go in and turn everything over because he's like, we don't sell things in church, right? That's against the rules. And that's kind of how I thought about it. But here's the thing. If you, when you study this, like, Jesus would not have been surprised or shocked to see buying and selling happening in the temple. I mean, this was the center not just for religious activity, but economic activity, political activity. It was the center of religious life in Jerusalem. And, and people's lives were dependent upon the things that they sold there. I mean, they would go there to make a living, right? And then people would come from all over the surrounding area to go and make sacrifices at the temple, to try to connect with God on a deeper way. And so selling doves and things like that was necessary to kind of uphold the system that they had there. And Jesus did not come in, I don't believe, like saying all that is wrong, but Jesus clearly saw something there that, that upset him. We can't, we can't think of the temple like a, a modern-day church. All right, The temple was more like the Vatican maybe in Rome. It's like a center of a, a lot of political and religious and economic power. So if Jesus went into the temple and he wasn't shocked to see all the commerce that was happening, what was it that made him so upset? Because Jesus is clearly angry. I didn't read the text for you, but you can look at it in Mark. Jesus, I described how it all laid out, but Jesus was really upset. I mean, he went in and was turning over tables and disrupting everything that was happening in the temple that day. So what was going on there? Well, I see two options for what made Jesus so angry. Well, let's talk about the first option. It could be that the economic activity that was happening in the temple 
was not just, it wasn't above board, and perhaps people were being taken advantage of by the way the economic activity was happening in the temple. It could be that the temple and the way things had gotten there, that the people selling and changing money were taking advantage of the poor, marginalized kind of Jews who were coming there to try to do business in the temple. Pilgrims would be required, right, to come and exchange their foreign currency uh, to, to make sacrifices and to buy the doves and everything. So the money changers had an opportunity there. They, they needed to change their money, but they could have used that opportunity as a way to take advantage of the people who were coming in. Money changers could have potentially been making large profits off of their business, which would have mainly been on the backs of the poor and those who were just trying to do their religious duty. Our world, the world back then, the vast majority, well over 90% of the people were living in poverty. And so most of the people who were coming didn't have a lot of extra money. And so for them coming in, if someone's taking advantage of them in the temple, that would rightfully make Jesus angry. You had dove sellers in the temple as well. And the doves, you know, when you would come to the temple, often animals that were required for sacrifice, and doves were kind of the cheapest option. And they were purchased by the poor to make their required sacrifices. And so it's interesting, doves are the ones that are mentioned in this passage. If you remember Jesus and his family, when he was a baby, they took him to the temple for his purification rites. And if you remember, Mary had to, and Joseph had to buy doves, which shows us that Jesus' family did not have much money. They were a poor family, and they were having to buy kind of the cheapest option for them to make those sacrifices. Women were required to sacrifice doves to purify themselves. The sick and other people um, who were already often outcasted in society had been, would be required to purchase doves, often to atone for ailments. And so, Ched Myers, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, argues that, that this is the problem here. That people were not just doing good business for the pilgrims, but they were taking advantage of these folks. And he says that the money changers and the dove sellers represented the concrete mechanisms of oppression. So the ways that people were being oppressed within a political economy that doubly exploited, so two times over exploited the poor and the unclean. Not only were they considered second-class citizens, but the cult obligated them to make reparation through sacrifices for their inferior status, from which the marketers profited. So then uh, Jesus he, he, disru- he flipped over the tables. He disrupted the activities. He somehow was able to block the flow of people carrying merchandise in and out of the temple. Now, of course, he didn't permanently block their economic activities. It's not like he's trying to like, completely stop what's happening because that would, that would be very hard to do. But for a period of time, he put pressure on them and he publicly exposed some kind of corruption and oppression through this symbolic action. It reminds me of times when We've seen a lot of protests, particularly in recent history in our country and across the world. And it reminds me of times that protesters has gone out and even stood across interstate traffic and stopped the flow of traffic. Um, They're not going to stop forever the flow of traffic on that interstate. But for that moment, they put their bodies on the line to try to raise awareness and disrupt what was going on. When often protests happen downtowns in the center of kind of economic power, Often they happen there to disrupt the economic activity so people will start to perk up and pay attention to what is happening. And so this makes me think of these kinds of moments. It makes me think of folks who have put their bodies in front of buses that are uh, deporting their friends and their families. These actions are meant to be symbolic, right? Putting pressure 
on people. And so Jesus' actions in the temple that day were pretty extreme. And they caused a lot of disruption and conflict. And some of the religious authorities were clearly angry about what was going on. And they began to look for a way to kill him. And so I said last week when Jesus rode in on that donkey and kind of did this counter entry to Jerusalem than what Pilate would have done, that also upset the authorities. This would have been kind of the nail in the coffin. Like, this is a big deal. Like, he goes into the temple and he's disrupting everything that is going on. It makes sense that Jesus' life became more and more in danger as time moved on throughout the week. And so Jesus then, after he was done, he, he gave some explanation because he had just done something pretty radical and out there. And he needed to teach them and tell them why he was doing what he was doing. And so he taught them. And one of the things he said was this. It is, not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, Jesus references here a house of prayer for all nations. He's citing a section of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 56. And you should go and read it. Um, it's, a, it's a very powerful portion of Scripture. In these verses in Isaiah chapter 56, the prophet articulates a vision as the temple being a place of refuge and welcome for all the foreigners and the socially outcast and those people who may have not been welcome in that particular place. It looks towards a day when all will be welcomed into God's house. And perhaps Jesus is using the scripture here to articulate his belief about what the temple ought to be. A place of inclusion and life and welcome and love of all. However, in some respects, we could argue that the temple had become a place of exclusion, even a place of injustice and oppression. One thing that had happened is the religious leaders kind of were, were there like in collusion with the Roman government and empire, and there was a lot of shady and, and inappropriate and unjust things that were happening. And so instead of it being an inclusive house of prayer for all nations, it had been made into a den of robbers. Now I want to talk about that phrase, den of robbers, just for a moment. It seems clear that Jesus was saying some people in the temple that day were, were robbers. Uh, he was calling them robbers, people who were stealing and taking things from others that didn't belong to them. Now, according to Chad Myers, like I said, he would argue that the people in the temple doing the business were the actual ones robbing people by their unfair practices and making too much money off of the backs of the poor. However, another way to look at this is like this, that maybe... The exchanging of money and selling of doves in the temple was not the issue. That that was above board and just fine. But maybe the problem was that many of these people were oppressing the poor outside the temple in their day-to-day -day lives and their daily practices. When you think about the term den of robbers, a den of robbers, in my mind, is not necessarily the place where they're doing all the robbing. But a den is where they go for hideout and for refuge and for safety after they've been doing the robbing during the daytime, right? And so they, the den is kind of their spot to hide out and be safe and be welcomed. So I wonder, had the temple become a place that had legitimized bad behavior? Had the temple become a place where those who hurt others would be welcomed with open arms and not challenged at all for their bad behavior? Had the religious system become so intertwined with the political power that they legitimized the harmful practices of the empire? A den of robbers. 
It makes me think of churches in America back when slavery uh, was legal all across the South. When white people went to church, they were often kind to each other, worshipped God, smiled, they gave their tithes. It was all fine and dandy. But many of those same people owned slaves and caused great harm to others. And when they went to church, often received no challenge and were accepted with open arms. Church had become really a den of robbers. The prophetic witness in Scripture, which I'm particularly drawn to these days, contains a strong critique of worshiping communities that worship God with their lips, but fail to work for justice. Perhaps this is what made Jesus so angry. That Jesus cared deeply for all people and wanted everyone to have access to the things that lead to flourishing in life. And he intentionally reached out to those people who were denied access, left out, excluded, mistreated. Jesus knew the Father's heart and he knew that God cared for everyone. And he particularly has a heart for those who suffer. And so maybe Jesus made a bold move here. He staged a dramatic public action to draw attention to how far the powerful had strayed, to draw attention to the way the religious community had lost sight of God's heart of justice for all people. You know, one part of the story that often gets overlooked is what Jesus did when he first entered the temple on Sunday. We're talking about Monday when he did the big, bold, direct action. But what about Sunday? The day before his action, he went into the temple and he just looked around at everything it said. And I wonder, what did Jesus see when he walked in and looked around? Well, if we take into account what Jesus did the day after on Monday, driving people out, turning over tables, getting in people's way, we assume he saw things that he was not happy with, things that made him upset. Ray Steadman, a a guy, preacher back in the 70s, I, I found this that he said about this particular story, and I think some of what he says is pretty profound. But he says, this was an official visit of the king of Israel, an inspection tour at the heart of the nation. He went into the temple where the very heartbeat of the nation was throbbing, represented in the worship that was lifted up to God. And he looked at everything. And we know what he saw. Commercialism, money changers, exploitation, corruption, injustice. But he did not say a word. He just looked around at everything. Nobody noticed him because he had been there many times before. But they did not know this was an official tour of inspection by the king. And it makes me wonder today, what would Jesus see if he entered into our churches today? If he looked around at everything and saw the great things, the good things, uh, but also the bad things, and maybe even the really ugly things. I know this has been on many of your, your all's hearts this past week, but I wonder what Jesus would see if he entered the Kentucky legislature and looked around at the vast majority of professing Christians and the decisions they make and how they impact struggling folks that Jesus loves so much? What would he feel if he looked at the policies, listened to the closed-door conversations, and peered into the hearts of the leaders who claim to love Jesus? I wonder what Jesus would see if he took a tour of our homes and looked at everything. If he saw the way we treated one another, the way we treated our kids and our spouses, if he saw our bank accounts and the way we spend our money. I wonder what Jesus would see if he entered our workplaces and looked at everything. What would he see in the way the employees are treated, in the way clients and customers are treated, the way we use our authority in our jobs? I wonder what Jesus would see if he entered our hearts and minds and he looked at everything. The religious authorities, clearly some of them did not want Jesus entering their territory, questioning their practices and their motives. 
No one really likes when people do that. They didn't like when Jesus asked those hard questions instead of receiving the truth that Jesus was offering them. Many of them chose to harden their hearts and even more so turn away from the truth. And they ended up, a good portion, colluding with the empire to have Jesus killed. But here's the good news. Jesus offers redemption and forgiveness and restoration. But I think we need to be willing to invite Jesus in to do that reconnaissance work, to look at everything and lead us down paths of change. Right now and really over the past many few years with the pandemic and then the, all the racial injustice and all the things that we're seeing has, has really uh, brought up a lot of ugliness and brokenness and, and I would say downright evil um, that has been exposed and brought to light. And it's been very painful, but I think it's been very necessary. If you want healing, sometimes you got to clean out the wound first, and that can be a very painful process, right? And I think the church, we have an opportunity to actually lean into all this. And to be a, we have the idea of confession and repentance as part of our faith, right? We should be okay with hearing the hard things and being willing to open up and, and say, what are the good parts and the bad parts? Because we know that God loves us through it all anyway, and so we shouldn't have any fear about walking down those hard paths. But often our temptation is to close up and put up our defenses and say, I'm not going down that path. I don't want anybody exposing things that I've done wrong or our church has done wrong or what our community and our nation have done. But I think the church has an opportunity to truly listen to the prophets, the prophets of old and the prophets of today, to pay attention um, to that, to practice radical humility and really allow Jesus to come in and turn the tables over of oppression and injustice and cowardness and greed. If you're willing to be humble... If we're willing to admit our wrongs, if, if we're willing to do that, then we can commit then to walking that road of change. And I believe the, what's on the other side of that is beautiful, actually. And that's life, and that's goodness, and that's joy. And so um, I just, we're already on that journey together. Um, but my hope is we can continue to listen and dig deep and through this season of Lent, do that work of true confession and repentance and, and, and ask ourselves, where are we on the right path, but how have we strayed? Not just as individuals, but collectively as a community, um, as a city, as a nation. And, and how can we do better? Um, and if we do that, I believe that transformation can happen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.